Heavenly Father, we are grateful for how you've revealed yourself to us um, as we've studied your word this week. We especially love to be reminded of how you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and that you are steadfast and faithful. It's a privilege to serve a God who is that way and loves us so much. I pray that you would help us tonight to learn more about who you are um, in a way that changes our lives. And so I pray that you would be with Nika and speak through her and that you would soften our hearts and open our ears so that we can hear exactly what you want to teach us tonight. Thanks for the opportunity and the privilege to be here and study your word. In the strong and saving name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jeej. Uh, y'all feel free to pinch her. I wore my green WWJD bracelet. This is green. I could have worn my shirt. Thank you, all blue scrubs. That's good. Uh, uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, tonight, we're going to cover Genesis. No, we're not. We're going to cover Exodus 32 through 34. I'm off to a good start. Uh, barely wearing green and don't know what book we're in. But I called this section the play. And the reason why I called it is I see this story more as like a three-act play. And we're going to walk through all three acts tonight. So act number one is rebellion. Act number two is mediation. And act number three is restoration. And so we're going to get all into the drama of what happens in the story tonight. But like any good story, you've got to know where it starts. And so how many of y'all watched The Wizard of Oz and then you went and saw Wicked, the musical, and thought, I never knew The Wizard of Oz till I knew Wicked, right? Or uh, maybe if you're a little bit more nerdy, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit kind of thing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about those movies. Anybody who tells me I have to watch people walking for 15 hours, it's not going to be an idea of a good movie. But, but since we had spring break last week and we had our friends from Elam the week before, if it's all the same to you guys, we're going to talk about the prequel of how we've gotten to this point in the story. Uh, remind you of where we've been. And so we've told you all along that Exodus is a book about a God who is, um, rescues, who redeems, and reveals himself. Ultimately, we said it's a book about a God who keeps his promises. And so right away, Exodus starts off where God is rescuing a young boy out of the Nile River. And we eventually learn this young boy is Moses. And God not only rescues him out of the Nile, but he redeems him from his sinful, mur- murderous past, and he brings him into Egypt to rescue his people. And in perhaps one of the most grandiose fashions you can imagine, God rescues the Israelites out of Egyptian rule, more so rescues them out of pagan worship, rescues them out of idolatry, rescues them out of a system that can't possibly save them. And then he lets them walk across the Red Sea and then he allows them to see that their enemies are vanquished before their eye. They get across the Red Sea and they look back and their enemies are wiped out and God reveals himself to that. And then we march with them through the wilderness and we see that they grumble and they complain. Despite their grumbling and complaining, God is kind to them, provides water and manna and quail. And then, and then the story begins to climax up to Exodus 19 when God gets to Mount Sinai with the people and he says, do you want to be my people? Because I want to be your God. And they say, we will do all that you command. And so God gives them the law and we learn that the law was both regulatory and that it helps us regulate our behavior, but also revelatory and that it reveals God's character. We learn what God's like through his Ten Commandments and through his law. We learn that he loves justice, that he loves women, that he loves the poor. And then, and then in chapter 24, with the climax of this story, they make covenant with God. They fatten the calf and they slaughter it and they shake God's proverbial hand and they make a covenant with him, this, this uh, double-sided covenant that says, we will be your people and this is what we will look like and you will be our God and this is what you will do for us. And they celebrate and they make offerings and sacrifices unto the Lord. It's this incredible moment. And because God wants to be near his people, 
He tells Moses to come up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's going to give them the tabernacle instructions. Because they're now God's people, God wants to draw near to them. He wants them to be able to worship with him. And so he gives them instructions of what to do with the priest, what to do with the altar, what to do with the incense, and all of these things. This is what it's going to look like for you to worship with me. And this is where our story picks up, that Moses has, has just left the wedding, and he's gone up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and this is where the rebellion picks up. And right away we see the people, the Israelites, forget that they just married God 40 days earlier. They come to Aaron and they say, this Moses guy, he's not coming back. This Moses guy, you mean the guy who was with you, who rescued you, who helped you, who put up with your grumbling and planning, that guy? The guy who's mediated on your behalf in front of God over and over and over again, that guy? And they're like, yeah, that guy isn't coming back. And so they panic. And they come to Aaron and they say, make us a golden calf. They feared their future. He's not going to come back. So they begin playing in their past. They're like the little kid that that mom drops him off at daycare or the playground or I don't know, whatever, kids day out or whatever. And mom's like, hey, I'll be back this afternoon. And so at three o'clock when all the other kids get picked up, the kid's like, uh, where's my mom? And so he's like, well, that's okay. There's still the one kid, Timmy, you know, that he would never talk to otherwise, but Timmy's mom hasn't come either. So he's like, I can talk to Timmy, I suppose. And so then at 3.15, Timmy's mom comes and picks him up. And he's like, now I don't have any friends. What do I do? So I call my dad. Should I call the babysitter? Should I Uber home, right? He's the, he's the kid that begins to panic. And mom shows up at 3.45. He's like, kiddo, pickup doesn't even end till four. Calm down. But you panic, right? You, you panic about your future. And this is what we see the Israelites do. And so in their panic, they come to Aaron. Aaron, the second in command, Aaron, the brother of Moses, Aaron, who saw when the serpents were on the ground that the staff ate the serpents, he saw the Nile turn into blood, he saw the Nile return back to water, he was with Moses every step of the way, this Aaron, because of either peer pressure or fear or whatever, falls to them, and he makes them a golden calf, and they begin to make sacrifices to it. They married God 40 days earlier, and now they're honeymooning with an idol, What's interesting about the Israelites is they're not actually violating the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Instead, they're violating the second commandment that they are casting an idol of God. They're not completely giving up on Yahweh as their rescuer, but they want to worship him and they want to praise him in a way that they can understand. So rather than being Yahweh Israelites, they go back to being Egyptian Israelites. And they commit the same sin that we do over and over again, that so many times what we want in our spiritual life is something that we can touch, taste, see, and feel. And so that's why we make idols. Because we want to control. We want to have something we can command. And so many times God asks us to have faith without sight. Someday our faith will be made sight. But so many times our our walk with the Lord is something that we can't interchangeably touch. But what's so sad about this is Moses was going to come down the mountain with instructions for the tabernacle. They were going to get to touch, taste, feel, eat the fattened calf, smell the incense, see the sacrifice. They were going to get the very thing that they wanted But instead of waiting and trusting, they doubted and they ran back to their past. Especially grievous in their sin is that the very same things that they did in chapter 24 when they married God, when they made covenant with God, are the very same things they're doing with this idol. They rise up early in the morning and they make sacrifices to it. Fellowship offerings and burnt offerings. They married God, but they're honeymooning with the idol. What a sad way to go. Right, let's say you get married to Bob and you're like, okay, Bob. And Bob's like, hey, I got to go, but I will be back. And so suddenly you look over and there's Roger and you're like, Roger, he's not back. We, you want to go to Costa Rica? I don't know. You good? We'll go. And, and, and that sounds so absurd because why? Because you love Bob, right? You don't just walk off with Roger. I don't know what these names are. I have no idea. I don't know any Bobs and Rogers. 
But it just shows you the kind of rebellion that they had, that they forsook their love for God. They panicked and they began playing in the playground of their past because they, they doubted their future. And God gets hot. God gets angry, and, and rightfully so. He comes to Moses and he says, Moses, your people have rebelled. Your people. Earlier, God calls them my people, Ami, my people. The Hebrew root for that is Ami. And here he's saying, no, your people. How many of y'all have kids, right? You know this. Your son? You want to know what your son did? When I would hear my mom, your daughter? I'm like, what did I do? Because I'm like, your son sank the shot at the end of the game. No, no, no. It's your son broke the glass, right? That was, was it. So here's God going, Moses, your people have rebelled. And then he says, they have turned aside quickly. 40 days earlier, we made covenant and you came up the mountain. It's not like they were any real danger. And sure, the Amalekites had attacked them before, but God had been with them every step of the way. What made them think he wouldn't be with them then? And then he calls them a stiff-necked people, which is to say that you're stubborn, which is to say, I'm not sure that they're going to change. And then act one ends like this. Act one ends with God saying, now therefore... Leave me alone, Moses, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. In order that, Moses, I can make a great nation out of you. Moses, get out of my way. I will destroy them all and I will start over with you. And then the curtain drops and we're in the end of act one and we're just like, y'all, what's gonna happen? Those crazy people are honeymooning with an idol. So what's the big so what for us? Well, the big so what for us is just like the, the Israelites, we should not fear our future. And when we do fear our future, we need to stay out of our past. Like, like I know for me, for my future, like sometimes I worry about a relationship that's maybe crumbling or it's not steady or whatever. And so then the old fear and the, and the idol of fear of abandonment creeps up. And so, so when you fear abandonment, for me at least, I begin to manipulate. And so suddenly the, the idol of manipulation, I can control, I can, I can maneuver, I can own this relationship creeps up. Because I fear my future, I begin to play in my past. Or maybe you fear your future because of finances or something like that. And so then the idol of, of working overtime or working too much or forsaking your family just to get that next, that next promotion, that next thing, so you don't have to fear maybe running out of money. Because it's too much to trust that God would protect your future. And what are those things that when you look at your future, they, they make you look back a little bit? Because you can't touch, taste, see, and feel them. And so you run to your past, your old idols, and you you play with them. You go from Yahweh believers to Egyptian believers, and we create these idols in our lives that we think we can control, and in fact, they lead to our destruction. Proverbs 31 is a a proverb about an industrious, hardworking woman. It says she is clothed in strength and dignity, and she laughs at the days to come. Why does she laugh at them? Because she's not worried about them. She knows who holds her future. The sovereign God of the universe who's omniscient, which is to say that he knows everything. He's omnipotent, which is to say that he's all powerful. There's nothing outside of what he knows and what he can do. And he holds our future. Paul, while in prison, in prison, in Philippians 3, writes, I forget what is behind. I press on towards what is ahead. We don't need to fear our futures because we know who holds our futures. And when we do fear our futures, stay out of your past Those idols will do nothing for you. Oftentimes, it's just waiting on God's timing. Just one more day, and Moses would have come down the mountain. They would have been able to touch, taste, see, and feel all it is that they would want to experience in the Lord. So we get up from Act 1, and we're out in the lobby getting popcorn and a drink, and we're like, he's really mad at them. Like, do you think he's going to kill them all? 
I would, like, right? I mean, you're just like, he should probably kill them all. And what's interesting is you're kind of like, what's Moses going to do? Right? Moses, get out of my way so I can kill them all. And so act two begins and the curtain rises and we see one of Moses' best moments. Moses isn't always an amazing leader, but this is an incredible leader. Leaders love those that they lead. God's threat of destruction is often an invitation for leaders to to initiate and mediate on their behalf. We see this in Genesis 18 and 19 when God comes and tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins bargaining with God, don't do that. And we see the same thing here. God comes to Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them, get out of my way. And Moses loves those he leads enough to intercede on their behalf. And he reminds God, hey, God, they're your people. They're not my people. They're yours and you love them. And then he reminds them about the Egyptians and he said, why should they have any part? Why should they be able to relish our destruction? You rescued us from them. Why would we give them any satisfaction in their destruction? And God, don't forget that you're the God who keeps promises. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you love them. You don't need to start over with me. I know that they're broken, but you love them. They're your people. What an incredible moment. Because if I'm Moses, I might be tempted to be like, you know what? Yeah, go ahead and take them out. They're kind of annoying me too. Could you give me like a hottie for a wife and we just start this whole thing over? I think I have a few years left in me. That's why it's a good thing God doesn't ask me to intercede. So. And, and God relents. It's amazing. Hey, Moses, get out of my way so I can destroy them. Hey, no, God, they're your people. You love them. Okay, I won't destroy them. Now, even though God relents, we still know that there are consequences for rebellion. So even though God relents and and doesn't destroy them all, we know that there's going to be a price to pay for rebellion. There always is. And so we're going to see a heavy, heavy price. First of all, Moses comes down the mountain and he sees Joshua. Joshua may be the best character in all of this because he's just like, I haven't been doing anything. I've just been up here on the mountain. I didn't leave my post. Which, by the way, that means Joshua was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights too. Brother either was getting a lot of help from the Holy Spirit or brother was hungry. So I don't know which one it was. I'm guessing the first one. But Moses comes down. He's got the two tablets in his hand that the the instructions for the law and the tabernacle are upon them. And it's not that God has massive handwriting and he needed two tablets. Instead, this was a sign in the ancient Near East that, that one of them would belong to a king and the other would belong to its vassal. And so this was the sign of the covenant, the sign of the treaty between the two parties. And so Moses has them in his hand. And this isn't a moment of irate rage where Moses can't keep them together. He doesn't like trip and accidentally drop them. Instead, Moses shows the people, you broke the covenant. And so when he breaks them on the ground, he's showing them in the very spot that they had made a covenant with God 40 days earlier is the very spot that they've now broken it. And that's scary. Now, this isn't one of those covenants that God makes with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's unilateral, where where Abraham's sleeping when God makes the covenant. And so it's one way and it's everlasting. Or like the covenant God makes with us in Jesus. And he says, if you will love my son and believe in him, you will have eternal life no matter what. Those are everlasting. Those cannot be broken. But this one was not everlasting. It was binding. And they broke it. And so Moses comes down and when he breaks those two tablets, he signifies to them the covenant is broken. You lost the right to be God's people. Oh. And then Moses comes and very fittingly destroys the calf. The calf was most likely made mostly of wood and then covered in gold. And so he, he breaks it up and he destroys it. And, and it sounds like the text a little bit. It's like he, everybody has a Dixie cup and they get like a tablespoon and they have to drink it. But probably what happened is Moses threw it in the water supply. And one commentator said the reason why this happened is most likely because then you drink the water and now it comes out as excrement and nobody's going to go after that gold now. I mean, you'd have to be really desperate to go mining for that gold. 
It's a fitting in for this idol. It will never be useful. The value of its gold has completely been decimated in this act. It cannot be cast again. It is now unfit for anything in this world. The calf is destroyed, and then Moses comes to Aaron, his right-hand guy, and he's like, Aaron, how could you do this? What did they do that compelled you to make this idol? And Aaron remembers his, his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam and does the same thing Adam does in Genesis 3, and he begins to shift blame, right? If you remember Adam, he's like, this woman that you gave me, God, this woman you gave me, the one that, by the way, I've been enjoying for quite some time here, uh, she made me do it, right? He's like, I didn't even know there were apples in that pie. I had no idea what I was eating. And they shift blame, and they try to get out of it. And so, so Moses comes to Aaron, and he's like, I, I, they, these people that you left me with, these people, they made me do it. Not only that, I threw it in the fire and out came the idol. Like I didn't even really do anything. It was like, Poof. which I wish I would have read more Bible when I was younger because I would have used these excuses a lot more often. I'd be like, I put the key in the ignition. It drove me there. I don't know. My parents would have been like, okay. But it's interesting. Moses doesn't even give Aaron a response. And one of the commentators says, it's as if Moses isn't even going to dignify that answer with a response. Since it's a play, this is what I imagine it looks like. Aaron, what did you do? It came out of the fire. Oh, it just walks away. <laughs> Aaron is confronted. We learn in Deuteronomy, as you guys read in your, in your booklet this week, if you, if you work through that, if God is especially hot at Aaron, and it's such a, an incredible moment that shows us that leaders are expected to lead, and when they don't, the consequence is heavier. And then Moses calls out and he says, if anybody would still turn to Yahweh, come to me. And then the Levites run to him. This is an interesting part in scripture because it may look like they're willy-nilly running through camp and cutting people down. But actually what's probably happening here is the Levites run to Moses and Moses says, go to and fro throughout the camp and anybody who's not willing to relent, then take their life. And while this is harsh, these are the people that are going to be keeping the covenant with God. These are the people that are going to be telling everybody else what it means to have eternal life in God. And so if they are not willing to bow to Yahweh again, their punishment is just. And so they go and 3,000 people refuse to relent. Can you imagine that kind of rebellion? You have the the, the chance to, to repent and you say, no, I want to stay in my past. And then Moses, because he loves those he leads comes to God and offers to make atonement for the people. And God says, you're not worthy. Moses, I appreciate your heart in this, but you're a sinful man, and a sinful man cannot atone for sinful people. Only a perfect man can make atonement for sinful people. And we see this in the fullness of Christ on the cross, and only because he was perfect in every way is Christ able to make atonement for us. And so Moses, I appreciate your heart, the same heart that Paul had in the beginning of Romans 9. I would rather be accursed than see my fellow Jews die. And so we see Moses' love for the people, but we also see God's theology in this. He says, you're not worthy to make atonement. I mean, it's getting bleaker and bleaker. The consequences keep mounting, and perhaps the saddest consequence of all is that God now distances himself from the Israelites. He comes to them and says, if I get any closer to you all, you will die. My anger is such, and your sin is such, that if they come together, it will lead to your destruction. And so out of my kindness for you, I have to back away from you. And so it used to be God, Moses, and the people, and now God says it's going to be me, an angel, Moses, and the people, because if I get any closer to you, it will destroy you. And out of his kindness, he pulls away from them. But can you imagine being an Israelite in this moment? And you're going, we walked with God. 
pillar by day and fire by night and his voice was all around us. We stood at the mountain in chapter 24 with the fire all around us and we made a covenant. God was with us and now he's got to separate himself from us because of our sin. I mean, that's heavy. And this is what we see happening, the consequences for their rebellion. But then Moses does something incredible because he's a leader. And Moses says, hey God, look, I know that we broke the covenant, but, and you're telling us to pack up and, and move on and continue to Cana, but we, we can't go without you. We, we need you. I understand that there's consequences for our sins, so God, please come with us. And God comes to Moses and he says, hey Moses, I just want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That slow to anger part, I, I am, I, you know, you grow up in homes for better or for worse, and oftentimes your view of God are often determined by how your parents or those in authority or whatever are around you. And I just, when I was young, I had people in my life who were quick to anger. And so this idea of God being slow to anger, he, he dealt with them in, in their walk towards Sinai, their rebellion then, their, their doubting then, their grumbling then. It's not like they made one offense and then suddenly God was turning their back on them. They, they grossly offended God. They married him and then 40 days later honeymooned with their idol and only then is now God at a place where he's going, I'm still slow to anger and abounding in love for you. And so Moses hears about God's character and the end of act two comes and it comes with Moses being an incredible leader and pleading to God. And he says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff necked people. We know, we know that we're stubborn, but if it pleases you, God, come with us and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us again for your inheritance. This is how act two ends, the curtain comes down. All these consequences have been doled out and rightfully so because they had sinned grievously against God. And then Moses just says, will you please forgive us? And the curtain drops. And so what's the so what for us at the end of act two is that leaders love those who lead. And so we should love those that we're leading. But unless you think this is entirely about God or Moses' leadership, it's more so about God's leadership of them. They are the ones that are committing adultery against God. And even in that, he is still being kind to them. It's his kindness that separates himself from them. It's his kindness that gives them a second chance to repent. It's his kindness to destroy the idols so they don't continue on in worship. It's his kindness that this is happening. It's kindness when your leaders are rebuked like Aaron. Over and over again, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he reminds Moses, Moses, this is my character. What do you want from me, son? And Moses, because he knows God's character, says, forgive us. Forgive us. And so the curtain falls and we go out to get, now we had our popcorn, so I guess we're going to Snickers this time. And we're going to look at each other and go, do you think you should forgive him? You think he will? Right? And again, you know, this is why I shouldn't lead. I wouldn't. I mean, we know them, right? They're the grumblers. We know their story. I saw the prequel. They're going to walk with him 10 more steps and go, you know what? Egypt was better. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I miss that idol. Can we make another idol? You know, I know that because I do that. Should God forgive them? No. He shouldn't. And the curtain comes up. And in their absolute unworthiness, and in their moment of total despair, Moses asks for mercy, and God says, hey, Moses, get two new tablets, 
and let's make a covenant again. You ask for forgiveness, and I will offer it freely. What kind of God does that? Right? I mean, I don't know a lot of people who do that. What kind of God does that? And that 40 days earlier, they married him, and then he comes down, and they're, they're honeymooning with an idol, something completely unfit for him, and then all they do is say, God, will you forgive us? And he says, yeah, let's do it again. And he says to them, this is incredible, he says, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as not been done and created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. What? I, mean, I don't know about y'all, but I, I rebelled. I can't imagine my parents coming in and going, hey, you just did something horrific. And they walk in my room and they're like, but get ready. As your parents, we're going to do something amazing. I'd be like, oh gosh, this is the end. <laughs> oh, I knew I should have ran away. I knew it. What kind of God does this? One that's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Yeah. What's the so of, of Act 3? We, we end and there's just massive applause. The play is over. And what do we learn? We learn that God's faithful despite failure. If you were in Genesis with us a few years ago, then you know this phrase because we used it over and over again. We said that the, the theme of Genesis is God's faithful despite failure. And then uh, that same year, we began writing the, exodus, or the curriculum for Mark. And then I was like, oh gosh, the same theme is true in Mark. God's faithful despite failure. And then we started writing Exodus, and I was like, oh, it's the same theme. Maybe that wasn't the theme of Genesis. Maybe that's the theme of all of Scripture. So super fun that I realized three years later that we did the wrong thing. But yeah, God's faithful despite failure. Over and over and over and over again. And why? Because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so what's the big so what of this whole play? When I was young, I, I like to ask questions, and so I would always ask people, I'm like, hey, would you rather be Moses or would you rather be Joshua? See, these are the kind of questions I ask, and so I don't have a ton of friends. Um, the other day I was at Half Price Books, and there was this Bible trivia game. I was like, oh my gosh. And my friend was there with me, and she was like, nobody will play you. Like, people don't play these games. And I was like, whatever, I'm getting it anyway. No, I didn't, but... And I was like, okay. And so I asked people these questions and they're like, why are you asking? I go, oh, well, I mean, Joshua, I mean, Joshua looks pretty good in this story. And Joshua gets to go into the promised land. He gets to march around Jericho, blow the horn, and then he gets to lead. And Joshua's got a pretty good story. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. And he gets to lead the Israelites. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm like, but Moses got to see God's glory. In the cleft of the rock, he got to see God's glory. Don't you want to be Moses? And so people are like, I don't know, Joshua's got a pretty cool thing. He's kind of triumphant. I'm like, no, Moses. Moses got to see God's glory. And I'd play this game back and forth, and I'd kind of fancy myself as Moses in the story, but the truth is I'm not Moses. At best, I'm Aaron. At best. But probably I'm the Israelites who refuse to repent even when given a second chance. That, that's the truth of this. And so this story could be really scary if you come to that realization because you see God get really angry and he distances himself. And you might begin to think, gosh, unless I'm a Moses or a Joshua, maybe God's going to move. And, and this is what is so great. The so what of this is that all of them should be jealous of us. God's anger that was righteous in the Old Testament because his son had not gone to the cross was appropriate. There was no satisfaction for sin and it was appropriate for God to get angry. God cannot wink at sin, but all of his wrath all of his anger was poured out of his son on that cross 2,000 years ago. And so when we sin now, he doesn't distance himself. He doesn't get angry with us. He grieves our sin, certainly, but he doesn't back away from us. 
We don't fear a sword coming in and killing us. Instead, all we hear over and over again, slow to anger, abounding in love, slow to anger, abounding in love. He doesn't back away. It's amazing. And so all these times, I I wanted to be Moses because I wanted to see God's glory. Actually, I told a story yesterday about uh, Joshua is one of my favorite characters in this movie because he's just kind of standing up on the mountain not doing anything. And then Moses comes down and he's like, we got to go down the mountain. And he's like, oh, what did they do? And he's like, they're worshiping an idol. And you can imagine Joshua's like, I'm so glad I was on the mountain because I might have done it, right? And so when I was growing up, my stepdad is one of the most even-killed men I've ever met in my entire life. I can count on one hand how many times I've seen him visibly angry. And this one time was, was a doozy. And so, uh, so he has three kids and my mom has three kids. And when we blended our family, it didn't always work out so smoothly. And so his youngest, Zach, was a pest. He was a pest. He was the youngest of us all. So Zach would do stupid things. And then you know how it goes when you're the youngest. So then when the older one retaliates, who gets in trouble? The older. Yeah, it's ridiculous parenting. <sighs> Whatever. And so I'm not bitter or anything. Uh, so Zach decided it'd be really funny to get some electric clippers. And he just, he like snuck up on his older brother and he just shaved the back of his brother's leg. Just right up the back of his leg. And by the grace of God, I was not home this day because the rest of the siblings decided that we should retaliate by we, I mean them. And so they held Zach down and shaved off his eyebrows, (laughs) which he had coming if you ask me. And so, but that's a, that's an escalation that, (laughs) you know, and so during this time, Zach was getting ready with the rest of his siblings to go to visit his mom and go on family vacation. And so now my stepdad is like, oh my gosh, like, how am I going to explain to his mother? And so he got, he got hot. And, and he came out of the room when all of this was confessed and he kind and he's like, did you have anything to do with this? And points right at me. And I'm like, I wasn't even here. Like, and I was in that moment going, I would have though. Like, I know, <laughs> I, I don't know if I would have, but probably. And so I always think Josh was like, oh, they're rebelling. Well, I've been right here this whole time, just fasting and praying. But I think about Joshua, and I think about Moses, and I think about even if, I, even if I got to be either of them, everybody in this story gets to be jealous of us. Because even Moses, Moses who gets to commune with God, gets to see God's back, and gets to see God's glory, this is an incredible moment in all of Scripture where God hides him in the cleft, and he, and he passes by, and Moses' face is radiant when he's around God's glory, and he gets to behold it, and then he spends time with God, and his face glows, and then he walks away, and his face fades, and then he comes back, and his face glows. And then all of a sudden, I begin reading my New Testament, which I recommend. And I got to 2 Corinthians 3. And it talks about the glory of God, if you're a believer in Christ. And it says that we all, us who are believers, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Some translations from ever-increasing glory. In Christ, we have his glory. I don't need him to ask to show me his glory. I, I possess it. His word says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'll be. His spirit indwells me. God is in me. And if you are a believer, he is in you. So the big so what of 32 through 34 is I'm so glad I didn't live then. And this side of the cross, we have something greater than even what Moses experienced in the cleft of that rock. That with unveiled faces, we fully behold the glory of the Lord that he indwells inside of us and we ever increase towards glory. And someday we will see God face to face. And Moses will be like, you had it so much easier than I did. And I'll be like, you're right. Where's Joshua? I want to tell him about this eyebrow story. 
we're to be envied by Moses. And that is no small thing. Let me pray for you all. Father, I thank you for your word. But more than your word, I thank you for your son and your spirit and your love for us. The word makes apparent to us and that your word highlights, but more than the word is your son who died on a cross. And when he resurrected and he came back to life and he ascended into heaven, he said, there's something greater coming and that is your spirit that lives inside of us. That when we say we believe, in essence, we say I do and we wed ourselves to you in a way that cannot end, that tablets will never be broken, that our covenant is eternal with you and your glory is our possession today. And so help us walk as women who have faces aglow because we have your spirit inside of us. It's in your son's name I ask these things. Amen.